I'm doing Christian apologetics. Why? Well, because I don't want to do Hindu apologetics or Muslim apologetics because that would be defending that particular faith. So when I say I'm a Christian apologist, that means then that I'm defending the Christian faith. Uh, in the same way as parents, sometimes you have to be apologist for your children, you know, and, and try to defend them, you know, even when they do something that ain't exactly kosher. Okay, <laughs> so, all right, so that's what apologetics means. It's something that every Christian is supposed to do. Every Christian is, is, is not supposed to leave this to your preacher. Um, your preacher hopefully has had some classes where uh, he has learned to do apologetics, defense of the faith, but this is not what Peter says. Peter says, let every one of you sanctify Jesus as Lord in your hearts and be ready to give an answer. Why? Well, because you have people um, that want you to give an answer that I don't even know. I mean, they'll come up to you and they'll say, why do you go to the Church of Christ? Or they'll say to you, why do you believe in God? In other words, everyone has to do your own apologetics, and your preacher cannot do that for you. Nor can your elders do that for you, because it has to be your faith or else it's not worth anything. In other words, you defend your faith, not the faith of your grandmother and grandfather, not the faith of some other person on earth, but you defend the faith that you have in Christ Jesus. Therefore, that's uh, what we're going be doing this week. Also, I can't count. Uh, I have, as you will see in just a minute here, I actually have uh, four lessons, and I, I forgot that Wednesday, um, the Red River does something different, so I only have today, tomorrow, and Tuesday, so we'll try to make it three lessons, but we're going to be talking about um, the big three, God, the Bible, and Christ. Now, these are the big three because those are the ones that we primarily need to defend. Now, first of all, let me tell you why it's in this order. Now, there are people who think you should defend the Bible first, and then you defend God, and then you defend Christ. Okay, what's wrong with that, somebody? All right, tell, tell me what's wrong with that. I'm going to defend the Bible first, and then I will defend God, and then I will defend Christ. What's wrong with that? All right, God's first. But besides the way I teach my students this, if, uh, if God does not exist, he wrote no book, and he has no son. All right, now that'll help you to put it in the right order. If God does not exist, he wrote no book, and he has no son. So God is always first. Now, there are others who say, however, that you ought to just accept Christ in your life. Matter of fact, a very well-known evangelical leader who uh, died recently had, uh, lived, had said this his whole life. What you just need to do is just accept Jesus into your heart. And then when you accept Jesus into your heart, you will see. Wow, look at that. Isn't that pretty? Okay, we went to the ark, not the original one, uh, but we went to the ark recently up in Kentucky. And, um, and that's what that picture was. This might work, guys. Can you do it? Okay, and so is God first, but why don't I just accept Christ into my life, and then Christ will tell me that God exists, and Christ will confirm the word of God. Why not that? A lot of people teach that. Why not that, somebody? Talk to me. Just accept Christ first, and then he will convince you of the existence of God, and he will tell you that the Bible is the word of God. Why not that? You didn't accept Christ unless you get the background. You know All right, that's good. All right, God sent him, so that's a problem, isn't it? If I just accept Christ by blind faith, then why am I accepting Christ as opposed to some other religious leader? 
You know, there could be some other religious leader that I'm trying to accept. Whoa. You know, Gary, you're a smart guy. Uh, you can't put it on display? It won't display. It goes to, it tries to change the resolution and fix it. So, oh, does it? We'll fix that after Okay, thanks. Okay, so here we go. Now, here's what I was going to do, and I can't do it because I got three days instead of four. All right. Now, notice, notice that the last day I had planned for a Q&A. Uh, and my Google number is that right there. Why? Because I am not giving you my real phone number. <laughs> but, but I'm going to give you a Google number, and here's what you do. If there's a question you want us to examine, and we'll still do this on Tuesday instead of Wednesday, at least half of the time, what you do is you text the question to me, okay? All right, you, and, and, and that's the number that will reach me. It is not my personal number. Well, it kind of is. It's just not, you know, it'll come through Google instead of through AT&T. All right, so in that case, then, that's my number, and you let me know about it. Then if we have enough uh, to do a Q&A on Tuesday, then we will do that. But what are we doing today? Well, today we're going to do some new stuff about God. Uh, why do we believe in God? And is God actually real? To a lot of people, God is not very real. So remember, Christian Evidences is about you preparing to answer, not me. I cannot answer for anybody else who's been my teachers, including Thomas B. Warren. He was the best of his generation, and uh, he encouraged a lot of us to go in to get PhDs in philosophy. He was wonderful, but I cannot defend his faith, nor do I want to do so. You can have mentors, but really it's the faith in Christ that we had to, to do, and this is a constant preparation. Why? Well, I was still trying to study last night. Um, except uh, at Auslander, uh, we can't get internet very well, and so and so I was using my phone as a as a what do you call it a hotspot so that I could do some research on the internet to find out what's the latest stuff about this. Now I'm 67 years old, and I've taught this for 37 years at Fried Hardeman, and I taught it for a year at UT Martin, and I also taught it for two years at Carnes at East Tennessee School of Preaching is what it was named then. So you think after four. 40 years, I'd know enough about this. But as a matter of fact, I don't. Why? Well, because I'm married. And according to my wife, uh, I haven't understood her since we first said I do. Okay, all right. So there's always something to learn, isn't there? Here's my wife over here. Okay, and, and there's always something to learn about apologetics because it's why this, I told you I was ADOS yesterday, attention deficit, oh, shiny. Well, I need something new all the time to keep me occupied because I get bored of something and then I've studied it. And I'm on something else. So this has been a good area for me in my life. I would like to also say that this is a diminishing area in the churches of Christ. Uh, we've had to drop our philosophy major. Um, there's a lot of other Christian schools that don't even have a PhD in philosophy. They don't teach apologetics per se. A lot of the evangelical world is, is still teaching it, but for some reason, um, uh, the newer generation is gonna it's gonna take an effort to attract them to this area because it, you know you can't show immediate job opportunities maybe, or maybe you can't make a hundred thousand dollars your first year, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, preparing to answer is a lawful. It's a lifelong thing. All right, so let's talk then about the basic argument for how you can know anything in religion. If you claim to know anything in Christianity, I mean anything that you say that you claim to know. All right, name me one thing, Chuck, that you claim to know about Christianity. Anything. I'm not going to embarrass you. Your mustache is, is covering you, dude. Okay, so give me one thing you claim to know about Christianity. 
Salvation comes from the grace of God. Salvation comes from the grace of God. Clay, give me one thing that you can know about Christianity or that you think you know about Christianity. Forgiveness. What? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a big thing. Whatever you say you think you know really has to go through these three filters. Filter number one, God exists. If God does not exist, he wrote no book and he has no son, remember. So can you show that God exists independently of Scripture? Number one, does God exist? Number two, is the Bible the inspired word of God? Is it what it claims to be? Number three, you're claiming that the Bible teaches forgiveness. You're claiming that the Bible teaches salvation through Christ. Can you back up your words by proper exegesis of Scripture? Did you interpret the Bible well? Are you sure the Bible says what you say it says? Because on Sunday morning, you can hear a lot of preachers who think that they know what the Bible says, and apparently they need to go back to the book. All right, and so there are three filters here. Number one, does God exist? Number two, is the Bible the Word of God? Number three, does the Bible teach what you say it's teaching? And if your claim, Clay, or Chuck, if your claims go through those three filters, then you're entitled to say the fourth thing. And what is the fourth thing? I am sure that, or I know that, what I'm saying is true. Now, otherwise, just your opinion or something that you've been taught. But if you claim to know something in Christianity, it needs to pass through these things. Otherwise, how are you going to be able to show that you really know what you say that you know? So with the existence of God, here's my imaginary Indian friend. This particular guy was uh, sitting on the front porch in Mitchell, South Dakota. If you ever been there, uh, they got a corn palace there. They also have a country store. And at that country store, there's this wooden Indian. And I call him, uh, for years, I've called him Octum. Okay, and Octum to my students means ontological, cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments. These are the four families of arguments for the existence of God. Now, I ain't dumb enough to try to look at the ontological stuff today, but I will look at the other three because they come from nature. You remember, what was his name? The guy that said uh, wild hickory nuts, you know, that guy that would eat weird stuff in nature. Okay, so, you uh, Gibbons, isn't that it? Okay, all right, so as we think about it, all of this comes from nature. So if I'm talking about cosmological arguments, I'm talking about cause. If I talk about theological arguments, I'm talking about design. And then moral arguments, I'm talking about right and wrong. Therefore, if it comes from nature, it's called talking about God from nature, which is natural theology, which is backed up by Scripture. Romans 1, 20, especially verse 20. Acts 14 in Paul's sermon at Lystra. Acts 17, Paul's sermon at Mars Hill. All right, so let's look just a little bit of cosmological arguments because I don't want this to be our focus today. I want to focus on the teleological arguments today. All right, so there's some significant books by Thomas B. Warren. And he debated a guy by the name of Anthony. He flew back in 1977. A lot of people wonder if these debates with atheists ever do any good. Well, later on in Dr. Flew's life, he became a believer in God. Before he died, he became a believer in God. 
I remember at the funeral of um, uh, Dr. Warren, David Leip and I had traveled to Texas where he was being buried. And his wife, Faye, uh, said to us, he says, uh, she said, Ralph, now that, that Tom has gone, Tom must be Warren. She says, who's going to debate these atheists? And, and I thought, well, are they, there's there a line somewhere? I mean, you know, where, where, where are the atheists? You know, where are they standing up? And then lo and behold, I had an atheist uh, uh, guy, Robert Price, about four years ago that I debated. And about two years ago, uh, Anthony Rosen, uh, Dr. Alex Rosenberg, who was uh, former chair of the philosophy department at Duke University, we had a discussion at Ohio State. So, um, so I guess Dr. Warren was a pretty smart guy. All right, as we think about this, therefore, uh, here was one of his arguments. Uh, I'm not going to use the symbols, but here you go. Everything in the world either is or is not a red cut. Wasn't that smooth? Everything in the world either is or is not a green chair. Everything in the world either is or is not a white hat. That's called the law of excluded middle. Now, Dr. Flew got in trouble with that because what's the definition of human? You know, there are some people today that are playing around with the genders, you know, polygender this and that, but basically it's still male and female. Okay, and then there are people that are saying, well, I'm not real sure that there's a big difference between the mountain gorillas and human beings. Okay, where are the children that are coming from their reproduction? In other words, you cannot have kids with a mountain gorilla. You cannot have kids with any other animals that are here because of programmed reproduction, everything reproducing after its kind. So Dr. Warren knew this. So he said to Dr. Flew, he said, the first human, therefore, either was caused, and I updated this, either was caused by supernatural activity or by natural forces. You don't have but two possibilities. In other words, God was involved in some way in the first human being being here, or evolution can't explain it. The world is self-explanatory. The world does not need God. There are no other options. There are just those two. Now, there are various theories of creationism, and there are various theories of evolution, but they all goes down to the fact that either there was a supernatural force involved in human beings or there was not. Number two, if the first human was caused by natural evolutionary forces, then one of two things had to be true. Either the first human was born to non-human beings. You ever seen X-Men? Okay, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> okay, all right. And or you or you see some of the other guys that are supposed to be advances in evolution. Well, they're teaching a type of evolution called punk eek, which means evolution jumps. You know, uh, evolution doesn't jump, but nonetheless, that's the theory behind it, and therefore you have X-Men. All right, and so when we say, well, where did the first human being came from, come from? Well, two non-humans uh, had to get together and produce the first human baby. Well, what's your scientific evidence for that? Well, they don't have any currently. Okay, and this was 1977, and what's the evidence now in 2018? By the way, the last debate that I had was on the 40th anniversary of the debate that Dr. Flew and Dr. Warren had. And so, so what's your evidence for that? Well, we're still working on that. You know, we're expecting any day now for a human being just to pop in the middle out of, out of, out of nothing in, in Walmart parking lot. We're expecting two non-humans to get together and do this. Well, that's not happening, is it? Well, what about this then? Maybe something that is non-human is transformed into a human while it's alive. 
Now, according to the latest uh, human genome uh, estimates, there are about 22,000 genes that a human has, but that's not the complexity of it. The complexity of it lies in the general, and the general would be your epigenetics that control your genetics. And there is nobody here who understands all of that stuff. It is so complex. Well, therefore, let's see if you can explain then how something was transformed into a human while it was alive. All right, you got two possibilities here. It was born to non-humans, or it was transformed into a human. Which one do you want? Well, Dr. Flew didn't want either one of those, even though he also was a PhD in philosophy and had taught at three universities in England. And what he wanted to do instead was kind of quibble. Like, are some of you bald? Okay, I've got a bald spot, but are some of you bald? Well, it kind of depends on the definition of what bald is. You know, that's what Dr. Flew wanted to say. And therefore, you know, kind of human is kind of loosey-goosey. We don't really know what human is. Well, we do know what human is with genetic studies, don't we? And we do know that even though they may be 98% similar to chimpanzees, that 2% means a big difference in the world of genetics. That's right. So when you're talking about this then, I want to know then, and Dr. Warren wanted to know then, which one of those two do you want? Well, you can't do the first one, and you can't do the second one. Then why do you keep on believing that the first human being came about by natural evolutionary forces? Okay, so um, here's another thing that has been updated, and uh, uh, Dr. Warren knew. And, and I tried this out on Rosenberg, and apparently Dr. Rosenberg didn't want to deal with it either. And that is, how do you get out of your prisons? You're in prison, you see, there you are in the middle as an atheist. So do you believe that, you either believe the matter is eternal or you believe the universe had a start? Give me your evidence for the universe having a start because it ain't the Big Bang. Because there was something there that you say exploded. All right, if that doesn't work, then give me evidence that the universe is eternal. If you cannot do either one of those, then how can you say you can explain how the universe got started? I'm reading, a, um, hopefully reading a book by Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's a, kind of a smart aleck. Uh, and uh, although that's not my, you know, astrophysics is, is not my area, I, I, know, I know some people. You know, and together, uh, I would hope that uh, right now he's asking about $100,000 for a debate. Uh, so I don't know exactly if he really wants one, but we'll have to see how that goes in the future. So if you can't get out of that prison, maybe you can explain how life came from non-life. Can you explain that? That's called abiogenesis. Can you explain how something that is conscious of itself came from things that are not conscious of themselves. Rocks and dirt. Can you explain how something with a conscience like you came from things which do not have a conscience? How do you explain how intelligence came from non-intelligent things? And then finally, how do you explain how human beings came from that which is not human? So every time, it's like the Birdman of Alcatraz who said, this is going to be the atheist of evolution. Every time he thinks he's out of one problem, he's going to be another one. So that, here's the way that I teach it. This is not the way that Dr. Warren would teach it. You got some hurdles to jump over if you're an evolutionist. If you can explain the world by, you know, just by virtue of nature itself, you got some hurdles. And, and by the way, 
biological, the Darwin stuff, that's just your first hurdle. That just You're just trying to explain how everything came from the first one-celled organisms, all the diversity of plant and animal life that, that exists today. Can you do all of that? Well, that's your first hurdle. Because you've also got to explain where did the biochemicals come from, from which life began. Now, according to them, we ought to go to the big island of Hawaii. And now that that, uh, by the way, that volcano has been erupting since 1986, but now it's, it's come to the surface and there, it's no longer magma underneath the ground, but it's lava on top of the ground. It's about 2,000 degrees and I wouldn't touch it if I were you. All right, but, uh, but according to them, while well, volcanoes produce the first things that produce life. So what we ought to do is wait to uh, watch the lava for a few million years and see if the population of Cleveland can come from that. You know, maybe we can figure out that it really is the biochemicals from volcanoes that produced the first life. And the answer is no, it didn't. No, that's not it. And then finally, if you can explain all that, Explain how all the stars and the constellations, the Milky Way galaxy and everything else just randomly organized itself. Just explain all of that. And therefore, if you want to be a real evolutionist, you don't do one of these. You do three of these because you're the one who said you can explain it without God. And if you say that you can explain it without God, I have a right to ask you to do it. But I've never had an atheist actually do this. They'll try to find ways of explaining around it. So did Paul use it? All right, go to your Bibles quickly now. And I want somebody to look at Acts 14. Uh, this is a class, and so it's not worship. Anybody can read. All right, Acts 14, 15 through 17. I want somebody to read that. I want somebody to read uh, Acts 17, 23 through 26. Okay, go to Acts 14, and this would be Lystra, uh, Paul and Barnabas, remember Elymas the blind man, and Paul is preaching saying, hey, don't worship us, we're just human beings, uh, don't do this. So let's read and see what Paul says in Acts 14, 15 through 17, who's got it? Don't waste time now, we've got to be out of here by 12. Do y'all have a Bible? Yes! Why are you doing these things? We are also being the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all things that are in them, who are bygone generations, and have all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not believe himself without witness, in that he did good, gave his rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, fulfilling our hearts with food and gladness. Very good. Acts 17, 23 through 26. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined 
their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings. Very good. Now, why didn't Paul use the Bible? They didn't believe the Bible. Why? What difference does that make if you read the Bible long enough? Surely somebody's going to believe it. I think you're right. All right, why didn't he use the Bible? In Acts 17, how many scriptures does Paul quote? Zero. All right, but what we see here, however, is that he's taking a different approach. He's using the cause argument. Your hat. What's the cause of this? Well, let me see here. Whoa, this is a Justin hat. Mm-hmm. Seven and an eighth, too small. Okay, and so what's the cause of that? What's the cause of the chair? What's the cause of the purse? What's the cause of the shirt? What's the cause of anything that you see around you? When you ask those cause arguments, they're cosmological. And what we're saying is, is that Paul used them to people who were pagans because they were not ready to receive Scripture yet. The same thing is true today. Not that the Bible is irrelevant. Not that the Bible is not all sufficient. Matter of fact, it is the Bible that tells you that it's okay to do this. So don't think that I'm somehow or another circumventing the Bible because it is God who authorizes this approach. In Acts 14, the results weren't so good. They stoned Paul until they considered him to be dead. And then this is cool. It's an understatement of Scripture. I love it. And then he just got up and walked back into the city. Okay, now they're hitting you with these big rocks. And you got these massive bruises and contusions and all that kind of stuff. And when they get through stoning you and they think you're dead, Paul just gets up and walks back into the city. Isn't that great? Okay, and then Acts 17, there were some pretty cool uh, people like Damaris and others who became Christians because Demetrius was uh, an Areopagite. I mean, he was one of the guys in charge of that mountain. If you go to Athens and see the, the mountain someday, remember this. Okay, so here are the design arguments and a couple of new things. Number one, there's the argument from irreducible biochemical complexity. Now, you can uh, avoid this, use the first word and last word if you want to, because this comes from um, intelligentdesign.org, if you want to read more about this, and they are newer arguments about design arguments, and this guy's name is William Demsky. D-E-M-S-K-I. Their point of view is, really, you know, the issue of creation is not about whether or not you believe Genesis 1 or you believe the flood story in Genesis you know, 6 through 9. It's not about that. It's not about whether or not you believe in Babel in Genesis 11. It's about whether or not you can explain how this world got here without God. You don't have to use the Bible in order to talk to kids about that. Therefore, there is nothing illegal about you talking about scientific concepts with your students in your classes if you don't use Scripture and you don't refer to the Bible and you don't refer to the 6,000-year creation or whatever else. You just talk about the evidence. And what is the evidence that is there? You are incredibly irreducibly complex. For instance, according to one point of view, the eye should have evolved over millions of years. But as Stephen Jay Gould, a famous evolutionist, said to another famous evolutionist, Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins was thinking, well, you know, after a few hundred thousand years, maybe we had 5% of an eye, and then maybe a few hundred thousand years there was 10%, until finally there was 100% and we have our eyes. And Stephen Jay Gould said to him, he used an expletive, which I will not use, and he said, Richard, what good is 5% of an eye? 
You can't see with 5% of an eye. There are no eye parts that you can take away to have the eye function to the same degree that it does when you are healthy. A healthy eye needs every part. Therefore, it is irreducibly complex. Now, if it is irreducibly complex, well, here's the way uh, Ralph teaches it sometimes, play of the day-day, okay, or play of the day squared, uh, P-O-D-D. Purpose, order, direction, and design. One of the things that I like to do in reading atheist is to see if they're going to appeal to those when they talk about nature. They will talk about nature as though she is a person. Uh, Rosenberg did that. He kind of apologized for it. But in his book, you know, An Atheist's Guide to Reality, he continually talks about Mother Nature and all that kind of stuff. Nature is not Mother anything. Nature, matter of fact, cannot even... You know, you've heard of natural selection. It takes a person to select. You selected that shirt today. You selected that shirt today. You selected that shirt today. Nature cannot select because she is not a person. The only thing nature can do is act as a sieve or a filter. When something works, then it gets shoved to one side. And if it does work, maybe it is maintained. But nature cannot select. I'll tell you what else. Nature doesn't care about you. Nature doesn't care about you one way or the other. Whether or not you're fortunate enough to survive or not fortunate enough to survive. Therefore, is there purpose in nature? Not if there is no God. Because there is nobody who put the purpose in it. There's nobody who put the order in it. There's nobody who directed anything, and there's nobody who designed anything. So if you're going to be an atheist, I want you to remove these words from your vocabulary, Richard Dawkins. I want you to stop talking about somehow or another that nature is wonderful in her ability to filter through options so that through social Darwinism, you know, there is no way that nature has the ability to do that. Therefore, there's a lot of evidence for design. Uh, You think that heart is indicative of design? It's the latest uh, about core heart. Uh, and it actually does beat inside people's chest, and it, it requires an internal battery uh, that has to be surgically implanted, and then you have an external port like charging your phone, so you charge your battery up in order for it to go, so people think, well, that's pretty cool. When I look at this one, well, which one would you say was superior? Let me try that one more time. Okay, if this one's made by design, and this is an inferior product, then which one would you say is the one that God did? Here's paramecia. Carl Sagan said that even one paramecium, this is a one-celled organism, um, characteristic of other one-celled organisms that are in nature. He said there was enough information content in one paramecium to hold a hundred million pages of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, if you believe that, why are you still an atheist? You know, I gave them my jump drive. My first computer was 128K. Can you remember your first one? Back in 1983. And I thought, why will you ever need more memory than that on a computer? And therefore, this little one right here, I guess, sold, I don't know, 16K. Do you know that this presentation that I'm using uses uh, 50 uh, megabytes of information? 
And do you know, therefore, that on this one jump drive here, it will hold uh, more than 150 times the information of my first computer. And the end is not in sight. You can buy, you know, 56 gigabytes and, and all that kind of, you can, wow. But it's information that is stored and it is complex. Well, how did that happen? Here's a woodpecker. Um, please, no personal references to me as being a fathead, but he is a fathead. And the reason why he's a fathead is because he has three layers that absorb the shock that surround his brain. He also has a tongue that is not connected in the roof of his mouth, but it's actually connected to the back side of his head. So that when he is woodpecking uh, on a tree, rather than hurting him, he's saying, give me some more, give me some more. We had a special needs. I, I, we had, I don't know. We had a woodpecker one time at our house that kept, uh, you know, doing our aluminum gutter in the morning about 6 o'clock. Man, what are you doing, you doofus? Okay, and then it occurred to me, if I put something on there and kill the bird mites, well, then when the bird mites were dead, the woodpecker went away. But it didn't bother him that it was an aluminum gutter. It doesn't bother him that it's an oak tree because he's designed to do it. As we think about the eye, we talked about that. Even that little fish, if you look closely uh, on the uh, gills of the, of the shark, that's a cleaner fish. Theoretically, in this species of shark, that's the only fish that's safe inside his mouth because a lot of sharks die because of tooth decay. And this little rascal is a dental hygienist. You know, he cleans his teeth. I like this one. The bombardier beetle is found in Australia. Man, he's cool. I thought my first car, a 57 Chevy, was cool because it had twin pipes out the back. Well, this guy's got twin pipes out the back that you wouldn't believe. I mean, he can adjust them, you know. And, and if, something, if something's about to eat him, like a frog or something, he can adjust these tubes and squirt out a liquid that instantaneously goes to the temperature of 212 degrees, that of boiling water, and discourages the predator. Now, I wonder if he evolved. I wonder how many of these guys blew their rear ends off trying to evolve this. <laughs> because it is a very complex situation. I like this little rascal right here. Uh, it's a plant hopper. A plant hopper is just a bug, you know, just a couple of millimeters, uh, that, well, that's two millimeters, that line there. So he himself is a little over an inch. He can jump 28 inches. Now, you want to compare that to LeBron? Okay, or the NBA, or anybody else who has a vertical leap? Maybe you got a good one at 44 inches. Maybe you got a great one at 46 inches. This guy right here can out-jump you. You want to know why he can out-jump you? Look at his rear legs. This is not a fake picture. This is a microscopic picture of his rear legs. What does that look like to you? It looks like gears, doesn't it? Guess why? It is. These gears 
allow him to jump like that. We could go on and talk about other things, but are you complex? The second idea from biological is from biological information, which means complex specified information would be how much information is there in the human cell. It used to be said in the 1990s even that we had a lot of junk DNA because most of our DNA we did not use, and the rest of it was just junk. Well, geneticists are not saying that anymore. Uh, you know why? Well, beginning in the early 2000s, there was an Encore project and the Encyclopedia of uh, DNA Information that was actually sponsored by the government involved some of our best scientists to see if they could discover about genetics. You know what they discovered about genetics? That the farther you go down into the cell, the more complex you are. And you know what else they discovered? They discovered that you don't talk about junk DNA anymore the way Ro Rosenberg, the guy that I debated, the, the, the way that he did when he wrote his book. He says it appears to be junk. Well, is it junk really? The human genome, genome encodes the blueprint of life, but the function of the vast majority of its nearly 3 billion bases is unknown. The encyclopedia of DNA elements, see there, encode, uh, project has systematically mapped regions of transcription, transcription factor association, chromatin structure, histone modification. This data has enabled us to assign biochemical functions now, not for 5% of your gene, but for 80%. And the remaining people who don't know what the other 20% are saying are no longer stupid enough to call it junk DNA. Why? Because it ain't junk DNA. God knows what he's doing here, and it's a very complex situation. Therefore, is it junk? Well, the microRNA receives messages from the RNA, which receive messages from the DNA, and they are transcripted and, trans and translated and transcribed until finally you get down to the level of the cell. Cell production, processing, and action. Um, this comes from Dr. Joe DeWeese, who is at JEC's initials on the corner. He, he teaches at, at Lipscomb in the College of Pharmacology. He's also a, a dear friend and helped me with the last debate that I had with Rosenberg because I knew that on the biochemical side, he's got a PhD in biochemistry from Vanderbilt University, so probably it's a good thing to have him. And on my left-hand side was a guy with a PhD in textual criticism from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, so I kind of felt like a possum between two blossoms. But nonetheless, I kind of I knew that these guys around me were prepared for this stuff. Look at that. When you see something green there, that's a microRNA communicating. This is an actual diagram of what happens in a human cell. And in this particular case, uh, how the cell ages. The red are the proteins and they are the grunts. And the green are kind of like middle management because they receive the message from the RNA, which receive the message from the DNA. And that is a picture of the communication that goes on within one single cell. It's 12 o'clock. Well, I didn't get referred, did I? All right, I uh, hope to see you tomorrow.